Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the Sectarianism Proxies and Desectarianization podcast. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by someone whose work is absolutely wonderful and pushes the boundaries of what we're doing in Sepad into uh, into some deeply interconnected, yet in many ways uh, autonomous areas. I'm really excited that uh, that Simon Wolfgang Fuchs is joining us. Simon is the author of of an absolutely wonderful book that has just come out literally, um, what, a week ago, uh, called In a Pure Muslim Land, Shiism Between Pakistan and the Middle East. And and he's also done a great deal of work looking at, at Shiism broadly and looking at the impact of the Iranian Revolution beyond the sort of traditional uh, Middle Eastern audiences. Simon is also a lecturer at the University of Freiburg in Islamic and Middle Eastern studies. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. It's really exciting to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. It's great that we've been able to do this so soon after we had you over in Lancaster for the uh, for the Transnational Networks Workshop, where we got a, a brief insight into some of your some of your fascinating research. And congratulations on the book. It's what is it? A week old? Two weeks old? Well, I think in the US it came out on the 22nd of April and the release date in the UK would have been the 30th of April. So it's still pretty new. Yeah, thanks so much for all your... <laughs> so in its, in its infancy. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, congratulations. Um, as I was saying earlier, it's it's on my summer reading list and I'm really looking forward to, to delving into it when I've got a bit of time away from, from podcasting, let's sure. say. So, Simon, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in, in Islamic studies, Middle Eastern studies and, uh, and, and Shiism broadly? Sure. I mean, Islamic studies, I think, all had to do with, uh, you know, my civilian service. When I graduated from high school in Germany, we still had to do either military service or civilian service. Sure. And uh, given German history, I mean, there are also some opportunities to do this well, related stuff abroad. And so, so I did my civilian service in Jerusalem, in, uh, in Israel. And I think for me, this was really... Uh, an encounter with the Muslim world, so to speak, for the first time, because yeah. I grew up in Munich in a setting that was not very diverse at all. I had no Muslim friends, not really any personal interaction. But then in this working environment, working together with Jews and Arabs and also encountering the West Bank, I think this was really, for me, the first time that I thought about these issues in a in a more direct way. And I think I was there also shortly after September 11th. So this has also added, I think, you know, to to this interest. And then later I moved away from an interest in, in, in the conflict between Palestinians and Israelis and, moved, you know, later studied in Syria and Iran. And so this added up. And then South Asia came much later. So when I was then uh, starting my PhD in Princeton, this mostly had to do with my supervisor there who also straddles these worlds because, you know, this wasn't Department of Needs and Studies. So yeah. the Middle East, so Pakistan or the Indian subcontinent is to a certain extent outside these definitions of, of area studies. But it had to do with my advisor, Kasim Zaman, mostly that I uh, took a new interest in a, in a new region that I so far hadn't really considered. Fascinating. So let, let's unpick some of some of those little stages, if sure. if I may. So in Jerusalem, what was it that you were doing? 
So, you know, we would care for severely disabled adults, right. feeding them, providing for them, caring for them, you know, just uh, what what you would do in a, in a social work job, so to speak. And uh, right. this was, uh, you know, very hard work, of course, uh, just so I have high respect for people who do this all their lives and sure, who really yeah. devote their energies to, to this line of work. And, and that then prompted you to go into uh, to, into your your undergraduate study in 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 Middle Eastern politics and politics broadly that's right I think it also had to do a little bit with this experience of you know the the, the conflict I think in, in in the immediate perception and how people responded to these two different sides I mean I met people who had very strong views uh, and I was really torn. I often didn't really know what to make of it. And I also experienced, of course, episodes of, of violent suicide attacks in, in Jerusalem. This all came after September 11th. Yeah. So, so this all had impacted, I think, also my perception of, of Islam and uh, what this was supposed to mean. And I didn't really know how to respond to all of this. So, And, of course, I didn't really have the skills at this time also to communicate with people on a more sophisticated level. You know, so every time when I was in Ramallah or in Bethlehem or somewhere else, communication was also limited. And I felt I really, you know, need to get a better understanding of, you know, quote unquote, the other side, so to speak, getting getting a deeper insight into these issues. And I think this was the original impetus. So very right. much uh, caused by current political events and concerns, but then I later discovered uh, the Islamic scholarly tradition and really the depth of Islamic learning. And today in my work, I really like or enjoy combining these two aspects. I, on the one hand, have really an interest still in current events and also you know, scholarship that is relevant to a certain extent, tackling questions that we are all dealing with, but at the same time, also bringing to the table this grounding in an interest in you know classic the classic Islamic tradition texts yeah. and also religious uh, scholarship more broadly. And it, it's absolutely fascinating the way that that you do that. I mean, if I may, just still going sure. going back a, a second, what prompted the the move to uh, to to going to Damascus and going to Iran to to. I guess continue your your engagement with Islam as a as a religion. What what stimulated that move? Yeah, you know, I mean, to to a certain extent, we were required, or you know, going abroad for a year was quite normal at the time. And I think Syria had this appeal of being a rather closed off country. Uh, you know, still this was also the time when it was put on the axis of evil, and so it it had also this reputation of being. Very different. So I think this also prompted my curiosity. Uh, it was to experience a different society, also to get a better sense of what's really behind the headlines at the time. And then Iran, I think it was really just this open. To the, there was another opportunity. When I did my undergrad studies, we were extremely flexible to squeeze in internships or study abroad programs. And so I wasn't really sure whether I should spend another half a year somewhere else. But then my supervisor at the time at the University of Tübingen said, if you don't do it now, then you will never do it. And <laughs> I'm really grateful that I went for another half a year because I think um, this definitely broadened my horizon and also um, led me a little bit away from this Arab-centric uh, view of the Middle East that we often have and really gave me an appreciation for the internal 
diversity of of the region that is not only defined by Arabness, so to speak. Yeah. So what are your takeaways from that time in Iran then? From a time in Iran, I think uh, often it was this feeling of being really humbled by Iranians who had read all of our German philosophers and playwrights and <laughs> asked me whether I had also intensively engaged with Kant and, and other great minds. Right. So I think this was really this imbalance that I felt, you know, I mean, growing up, and of course in my studies to a certain extent, maybe we had then read Persian poetry a little bit, but it was really not the same level of interest and engagement and to a certain extent also this intellectual arrogance in a Western setting that we often have towards the intellectual production elsewhere. So I think this was a really good reality check also to... Um, re-evaluate what we deem as important, I would say. That's definitely a big takeaway point. And I think I've seen some of my most wonderful theatre plays in my life in Tehran. <laughs> so the oh, wow. scene is really incredible. Such as what? What were some of those productions? So I remember there is a, a, a I vividly remember a play by a Swiss playwright called Friedrich Dürrenmatt, And he, I think the English title would translate as The Visit of the Old Lady that was put on stage in Tehran. And I I think it was just extremely gripping. And in these moments, you also totally forget that, of course, all the female actors have to be veiled because they also improvise and put on different hats and stuff like this. So I think these are some of the moments when you forget that there are rather severe clothing restrictions also for women in the public realm. Sure. So it's, it's absolutely fascinating. So I guess all of this from your, your time in Jerusalem all the way through this had a, a big impact on your, your PhD studies at Princeton. Yeah, because it, uh, it uh, I think it kindled this interest in you know, both the Islamic scholarly tradition and the modern period. And then, um, I, but you know, at this point, I had a totally different project in, in mind. So I really wanted to do a study that looks at the reception of Ibn Taymiyyah, this very yeah. important 13th or 14th century uh, Damascene theologian who is really important for uh, Salafi groups today. And I wanted to uncover a little bit when, you know, what happened or how he was perceived and read before the late 19th century when he was suddenly rediscovered and his manuscripts were made available and edited and printed. Um, but, uh, you know, that's often how it goes in the U.S. setting. You enter the program with some ideas <laughs> yeah. about a PhD program and then you take courses, you do intensive coursework and then your interests uh, shift and they are also supposed to shift. So in my case, uh, the encounter with Muhammad Qasim Zaman, my supervisor, and his seminar that we took on uh, basically Islamic thought and uh, religious authority in Islam really completely reshaped uh, what I wanted to, to do. And what was it about Shiism that captured your imagination then? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really a good point. So, yeah, I thought for uh, for some time that I would be really interested in Islamic law. This is sort of the naive notion that I had of Islamic law. And then I took a course in Princeton that really dealt with Islamic law because uh, one student who later dropped the course, he suggested that we should read texts on Urf, on customary law. So the entire semester 
We read uh, textbooks in Arabic and more sophisticated scholarly texts on, you know, sales contracts, marriage contracts, when they are valid, when not. And if we are serious about law, you know, this is what these are the nuts and bolts of any legal system and of Islamic law. In I mean, Islamic law is no exception to this. That we don't talk about fancy things as far as the you know religion and states is concerned, but it's really about these day-to-day. Uh, things, you know, contracts in particular. And I felt, mm, well, you know, I didn't go, I didn't go <laughs> to law school for a reason, so I don't really want to enter it through the back door yeah. of Islamic studies. Maybe I'm really more interested in theology. And then, of course, in the Sunni context, um, theology is pretty straightforward. There is the Prophet, the Quran, and that's it. But for Shi'is, it's always a much more complicated issue, given the fact that you have the the 12 imams and what is their status since they also have some sort of cosmological position. So how do you square this with the focus on, on Tawheed, on the unicity of God in an Islamic context? And I think this is where it's absolutely fascinating, your your interest in sort of the, the classical theological dimensions of Islam, but then the more contemporary manifestations of, of political life, not only in the Middle East, but also in, in, in India, colonial India and Pakistan. And, and it, it really is that sight of the interaction of, of different, different disciplines, I think. Right. And I, I think it, it's absolutely fascinating how you, you bring these two together. So those people that, that haven't had chance to read your, your book then, your two-week-old book, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about it? Because I think this is, this is a chance for, for the two disciplines to, to sort of speak to one another and speak through each other. Sure. And I wouldn't even say that it's only restricted to two disciplines, you know, because since sure. I mostly work with texts, I, of course, really draw on many of my colleagues who do, who have a more anthropological approach. So this is another field that is extremely uh, important for me also to check some of my findings and to com- compare this to more textual evidence would also feel you know colleagues in the field of anthropology uncover and they have also raised some or produced some very stimulating questions for me but as far as the book is concerned I think I was really interested in this um, basic question what it, what does it mean you know to be a she in a in, in the context of, of Pakistan when you are removed from what we in a more classic view see as the centers of Shi scholarship that are located in Iran and Iraq. So what does it mean that we don't have any of these grand ayatollahs that dominate the Shi world residing in Pakistan proper today? There are some people who make claims to such a status, but I think it's it's safe to say that um, you know for Shi'is there is uh, this um, this interest, of course, in, in, in the Middle East. So what does this mean for religious authority? What does it also mean for the travel of ideas? How do they get uh, reworked and also translated from texts in Arabic and Persian into Urdu? So what what does this entail? And how do we make sense of uh, things like sectarianism that plague? Pakistan today, how has this originated, how can we explain these phenomena, because there's also this tendency in in the literature to reproduce these dichotomies of center and periphery and always yeah. point to anti-Shi discourses emanating mostly from Saudi Arabia 
uh, without really bothering to take a look at the local intellectual production of both Shi'is and also their opponents in a Pakistani uh, setting. And, you know, another sort of topic that was really of interest to me was what does it what does really change once Pakistan comes into being because in the colonial period Shiism in South Asia had its own centers of learning and scholarship in Lucknow in north in northern India but then suddenly with the partition and when Pakistan came into being Shis who migrated to the new state were really cut off from basically all of their important madrasas, their religious schools, their important buildings and centers. And Shi life had to uh, be built from scratch, basically, in Pakistan. And so this also meant uh, that new actors rose and, uh, you know, dominated the scene, the internal Shi scene in Pakistan, since many of the leading scholars stayed behind in India. They didn't want to leave, you know, their important... uh, buildings and yeah. uh, endowments and everything like that. So what are some of the factors that, that shape this difference then? What are some of the factors that that mean that in, in the Indian context there's one set of experiences and in the Pakistani context there's a different set? Well, you know, I think what really happens uh, as one important development is really, as I just have sort of touched upon, that many of the leading scholars, the leading mujtahids, they stayed behind. So this also meant that uh, a, a different set of uh, scholars who are who don't really have this sophisticated training, but are more specialized in public preaching, you know, more also in all these esoteric aspects of Shi Islam, they really dominated the early uh, years of Pakistan, I would say. And then it was a later development that um, scholars traveled to places like Najaf in Iraq, and they came back with a reformist outlook and really wanted to uh, change the uh, internal Shi dynamics because they, as they experienced it, certain actors who were far from Shi orthodoxy were, were really running the show in a Pakistani context. So that's definitely one issue that we see arising and that we can really you know, closely associate with the partition of the subcontinent, I would say. It's, it's absolutely fascinating, really, really interesting. And how does that evolve over time then, I guess? I mean, after partition, we see the, the cultivation of, of a new state, and with it we see the cultivation of, of new sort of institutions and infrastructure, including, I guess, religious learning and religious centres sure. in Pakistan. So, so how does this evolve over time? Yeah, I mean, of course, we have really this impressive build-up of Shi institutions, you know, because at the time of partition, there were only two minor institutions in what is today Pakistan. So really, Shi's had a long way to go. And this definitely happened. This also definitely happened with the help of Grand Ayatollahs residing in Najaf and later in Qom. But I think now there is also an interesting generational divide as well that we that we currently see in um, in the Pakistani context because then you know until basically the 1970s uh, Najaf and Iraq was really high on on the agenda and most people would go there for uh, higher education they would travel to Iraq um, and then Saddam clamped down on, on visa so he made it really tricky for Pakistanis to study in an Iraqi context and for yeah. a couple of years 
because also the Shah was, was skeptical, you know, of the influx of Shi scholars. Pakistani Shi's couldn't really go anywhere. And then after 79, Iran opens up as a new opportunity. And so a new generation of Shi scholars goes to Iran and also becomes politicized there to an extent that the older generation hasn't in in in, uh, in an Iraqi context. And we still see this playing out today that when you look at major Shi seminars, uh, or seminaries uh, in um, in uh, Pakistan, most of these leading scholars still have a classic Najafi training, and but there are up and coming scholars who have this Iranian background, and there's also a generational divide, I would say. Sure. And of since 2003, once again, Iraq opened up, and now she scholars today who would like to go for higher training they can really make a decision uh, where they would go. And I think this is also added to the vibrancy of the debate within a Pakistani context. Well, it, it's it's really interesting. You preempted one of my questions there, Simon, <laughs> by I, I was going to ask what what type of relationship did these Shia groups have with with the more traditional Shia centers of learning? So um, you an excellent job in, in, uh, in predicting that question. Where do people go traditionally now then, now that there are options and Iraq and Iran are both open for for engagement in in, in sort of Shia learning? Yeah. I mean, I would, uh, so, you know, it has been a while now that I've been to Najaf. The last time that I was there was in 2013. So it would definitely be really interesting to go back and get a sense of how things have shifted since then. But uh, a couple of years ago, I had the sense that uh, you know it would have been much easier simply to go to Iran because the Iranians take really good care of you. They provide you with all the facilities. They you can bring your family. Everything is really set up. You have nice scholarships, good student accommodation. And in Najaf, it was still at this time more complicated. You know, you could uh, you. It was a little bit tougher. The scholarships weren't maybe as generous. Uh, it was also it's of course also a longer journey to simply go there. Maybe it was also security-wise more more dangerous. Um, but some Pakistani scholars or students deliberately act for Iraq because they don't want to buy into the politicized system of the Iranian Hausa, where certain texts can't really be discussed and read. And so they really prefer this intellectual openness that Najaf stands for, where I think the Hausa still operates in the more classic term, that it, there's no overarching structure. It's really yeah. grand ayatollahs who give their um, lectures and, of course, who have libraries and all of this, but there's no uh, you know, state-run body that would supervise this institution, and that's very different in an Iranian context. And I think um, when I spoke to Pakistani students in in in, Qom, in in Iran, they sometimes complain that they also feel not taken seriously, also with their long tradition of learning. And the Iranians are really pretending that Shi Islam started in 1979, <laughs> as one put it to me, for example. And this is, I think, sure. also what they are resisting at some points. Yeah, um, this is a, an incredibly smooth segue into your the other dimension of your research that you're you're currently working on, sure. I believe, um, with your your work for uh, a a project sponsored by Gerda Henkel, which is looking at the impact of the Iranian Revolution on on Shia uh, Shia groups across the across across the world or across across Asia. 
Well, I mean, definitely she groups, but actually to a certain extent for this current project, I'm more in, I'm even more interested in the impact the revolution had on non-Shi actors, also sure. leftist groups, but also Sunni Islamists. And, uh, you know, I've termed the project that, that it's supposed to be a global history of the Iranian revolution that is also, as you rightly pointed out, supported by the Gerda Henkel Foundation. And also um, it's under contract with Princeton University Press. Fantastic. Uh, so, I, so this is where I have to deliver the manuscript in, in a couple of years. And I think it's really this, um, this interest of uncovering a moment in the early 1980s when the when this phenomenon of sectarianism that is so prevalent in many contexts of South Asia, the Middle East, but also, I mean, we could also point out Southeast Asia and other contexts of the of the wider Muslim world, so to speak. Um, to, and yeah, just sorry to close, to get back to the beginning. <laughs> so the, so the, the idea is to get a sense of what happened back then and to what extent also Sunni actors were really drawn to the events of Iran, how they made sense of it, and to get a better understanding of when this fascination with the revolution and the support the revolution enjoyed among, you know, a broad range of actors and, and people really um, uh, sort of turned towards a, a more negative uh, impact or perception or that people suddenly started to perceive Iran in mostly sectarian and narrow Shi terms and that they didn't buy any more into this project of a of an Islamic revolution that Iran was trying to push. And what are the longer term repercussions of this then? Well, you sort of hinted at a couple of them, but I imagine there are more. Yeah, you know, I think, of course, I'm still in the research phase of trying to uncover those, but uh, some of these findings... Uh, that I would see, uh, or some of the long-term repercussions, is definitely also a greater role for religious scholars compared to lay activists in, in Islamist circles, that we also see that in the wake of the Iranian revolutions, also for Sunnis, you know, religious specialists, once again, gain a, a bigger role. I also would argue that in the context of Islamist actors, the Iranian alliance, the alliance between Islamist and leftist actors at the time, you know, this was later uh, fizzled out, or the Iranian regime persecuted then its former leftist allies. But at this time, there was still this idea that also Islamist actors should discover the social question or should be more attuned to the needs of, of workers, workers' rights, uh, you know, just being more present in this context. So I think this also has really given uh, a new spin to intellectual underpinnings of, of Islamism also in a, in a longer period of time. And I think there's also new political terminology emerging from the Iranian revolution, you know, since Khomeini and others had no problem of embracing concepts like the will of the people and democracy. Yeah. Of course they, and the republic, of course, they fused it with Islamist terminology to speak of an Islamic republic, but this was really a very new approach. And until then, Islamist actors have been really wary of using any of these terms that they saw as Western or secular, and so they didn't want to touch them at all. So I think there's also 
Um, this also is a big impact of the revolution. And we could also talk about Islamic feminism and stuff like this, but uh, uh, I think I have to refrain from commenting on this in more detail because I'm still in the research phase as far as these issues are concerned. So we're going to have to get you back again when you're done with the research to talk about some of these other findings. Simon, we've taken up a great deal of your time, but I have one question left, if I may. And and that is just to, to relate sort of what you've been doing explicitly back to the the emergence of sect-based divisions and, and violence. And I wonder if you could just say a few words about the manifestation of sectarian divisions in in Pakistan, in, in India, and sort of beyond the traditional borders of the Middle East, please. Sure. You know, of course, it, it's not that uh, relations, Sunni relations have always been very smooth in, in the subcontinent. So we have, as uh, as Justin Jones in his book, Shia Islam and Colonial India, has documented so ably in the 1930s, there are huge conflicts in the city of Lucknow, issues of you know demonst- uh, demonstrations and the so-called Tabara agitations when Shis go out in order to denigrate the you know close companions of the Prophet and the first caliphs. And, but these were really occasional outbursts, I would say, of religious uh, or religious conflict. And uh, there was sectarian literature, polemical literature, and also Shi anxiety as far as the emergence of Pakistan is concerned, to what extent it would become an oppressive Sunni-only state. But this later didn't really materialize in the first decades of uh, of Pakistan, and um, you know, Shi'is are well represented in the country, in the army, and in, in the business community, also in politics. But then, what happens, I think, with in the 1960s is at first that we have the rise of uh, the South Asian version of Salafism, of Ahli Hadith actors with close ties to Saudi Arabia, who start to push a more doctrinal-based, you know, agitation against the Shi'is. And we see a rise in polemical publications at this time. But what really reshapes relations is precisely the Iranian revolution and new activism and resurgence of Shi Islam in South Asia, in both India and Pakistan, and then certain other Sunni actors who are affiliated with the Diobandi persuasion in a Pakistani context really got extremely scared about this Shi political project suddenly, and they start to organize and form and trying to make the case that Shi's are not, you know, proper citizens of a Pakistani state, or the Pakistani state should redefine its identity insofar as it should, for example, ban any manifestations of public religiosity that is not a Hanafi Sunni version of it. Yeah. It's it's fascinating and, and there's so much that we could delve into here. This <laughs> sure. interaction of sort of geopolitical rivalries on local political theological contexts. And I guess we're gonna have to do this again, Simon, sometime and, and really delve deeper into some of these things. But um, given that we've taken up so much of your time already, I'd just like to say thank you so much for, for spending it with us. It's been absolutely fascinating to to hear more about your work and and what's underpinning it. And I'm really looking forward to to sitting down and reading the book sometime soon. Thanks so much, Simon, and thanks for giving me this opportunity on the one hand to 
speak about my research in the past and the current project and also to reflect a little bit on you know how I got there that's always really wonderful to sit down with great colleagues to share these views because I think we don't really do this enough and thanks so much for providing the space and for all your interest. Uh, it's a pleasure thank you so much so until the next time thanks for listening.